0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening. We uh, have on this site over 3,400 audios featuring uh, great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. You can now go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and download the Church One app. That's all one word, Church One App for sermon audio, enter Hackberry House as your choice of broadcasters. Possibly, my books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.falkner.72 at gmail.com. I'm reading today from a book that's in the public domain. You can actually access it yourself by John, actually, by, by James Patton. And it's about his brother, John G. Patton, you may have heard of him, great missionary who spent 30 years among South Sea cannibals. In fact, that's what the name of the book really is, 30 Years Among South Sea Cannibals. I'm reading the introduction right now, the preface, actually. Ever since the story of my brother's life first appeared in January of 1889, it has been constantly pressed upon me that a Young Folks edition would be highly prized. The autobiography has therefore been recast and illustrated in the hope and prayer that the Lord will use it to inspire the boys and girls of Christendom with a wholehearted enthusiasm for the conversion of the heathen world to Jesus Christ. A few fresh incidents have been introduced, The whole contents have been rearranged to suit a new class of readers, and the service of a gifted artist has been employed to make the book every way attractive to the young. For full details as to the missionary's work and life, the complete edition must still, of course, be referred to. And that's signed James Patton in Glasgow, Scotland, September of 1892. So let's begin this story today. <clears throat> Chapter 1, Our Cottage Home. My early days were all spent in the beautiful county of Dumfries, which Scotch folks call the Queen of the South. There in a small cottage on the farm of Brehead, in the parish of uh, Kirkmaho, I was born on the 24th of May, 1824. My father, James Patton, was a stocking manufacturer in a small way, and he and his young wife, Janet Jardine Rogerson, lived on terms of warm personal friendship with the gentleman farmer, so they gave me his son's name, John Gibson. And uh, the curly-haired child of the cottage was soon able to toddle across to the mansion and became a great pet of the lady there, On my visit to Scotland in 1884, I drove out to Brayhead, but we found no cottage, no trace of a cottage, and amused ourselves by supposing that we could discover by the rising of the grassy mound the outline where the foundations once had been. While yet a mere child, five years or so of age, my parents took me to a new home in the ancient village of Torthorwald about four and a quarter miles from Dumfries, on the road to Lockerbie, At that time, say 1830, Tortherwald was a busy and thriving village, and comparatively populous, with its uh, cotters and crofters, large farmers and small farmers, weavers and shoemakers, doggers and, and coopers, blacksmiths, tailors. Fifty-five years later, when I visited the scenes of my youth, the village proper was extinct, except for five thatched cottages where the lingering patriarchs were permitted to die slowly away. Soon they, too, would be swept into the large farms and their garden plots plowed over like sixty or seventy others that had been blotted out. From the bank hill close above our village, and accessible in a, in a walk of fifteen minutes, A view opens to the eye which, despite several easily understood prejudices of mine that may discount any opinion that I offer, still appears to me well worth seeing amongst all the beauties of Scotland. At your feet lay a thriving village, every cottage sitting in its own plot of garden and sending up its blue cloud of peat reek which never somehow seemed to pollute the blessed air. And after all has been said or sung, a beautifully situated village of healthy and happy homes for God's children is surely the finest feature in every landscape. Looking from the bank hill on a summer day, Dumfries, with its spires, shone so conspicuous that you could have believed it not more than two miles away. The splendid sweeping vale through which Nith rolls to Solway lay all before the naked eye, beautiful with village spires, mansion houses, and white shining farms. The Galloway hills, gloomy and far tumbling, bounded the forward view, while to the left rose criffel cloud-capped and majestic. Then the white sands of Solway, with tides swifter than horsemen. And finally the eye rested joyfully upon the hills of Cumberland, and noticed with glee the blue curling smoke from its villages on the southern Solway shores. There, amid this wholesome and breezy village life, our dear parents found their home for the long period of forty years. There, too, were born to them eight additional children, making in all a family of five sons and six daughters. Theirs was the first of the thatched cottages on the left, past the miller's house, going up the village gate with a small garden in front of it, and a large garden across the road. And it's one of the few still lingering to show to a new generation what the homes of their fathers were. The architect who planned that cottage had no ideas of art, but a fine eye for durability. It consists at present of three, but originally of four, pairs of oak couples, uh, uh, Scottish kipples. "'planted like uh, solid trees in the ground at equal intervals "'and gently sloped inwards till they meet or are coupled at the ridge, uh, "'this coupling being managed uh, not by uh, rusty iron "'but by great solid pins of oak. "'A roof of oaken wattles was laid across these "'until within eleven or twelve feet of the ground and, "'and from the ground upwards a stone wall was raised.' as perpendicular, as was found practicable, towards these overhang wattles, this wall being roughly pointed with sand and clay and lime, now into and upon the roof was woven and intertwisted a covering of thatch that defied all winds and weathers and that made the cottage marvelously cozy, being renewed year by year and never allowed to remain in disrepair at any season. But the beauty of the construction was and is its durability, or rather the permanence of its oaken ribs. There they stand, after probably not less than four centuries, japanned with peat reek until they are literally shining, so hard that no ordinary nail can be driven into them, and perfectly capable of service for four centuries more on the same conditions. The walls are quite modern. Having all been rebuilt in my father's time, except only the few great foundation boulders piled around the oaken couples, and parts of the roofing also may plead guilty to having found its way there only in recent days, but the architect's one idea survives, baffling time and change: uh, the ribs and rafters of oak. Our home consisted of a butt and a ben and a midroom or chamber called the closet. The one end was my mother's domain and served all the purposes of dining room and kitchen and parlor, besides containing two large wooden erections called by our Scotch peasantry box beds, not holes in the wall, as in cities, but grand, big, airy beds, adorned with many-colored counterpanes and hung with natty curtains, showing the skill of the mistress of the house. The other end was my father's workshop filled with five or six stocking frames, whirring with the constant action of five or six pairs of busy hands and feet, and producing right genuine hosiery for the merchants at Hockigan and Dumfries. The closet was a very small apartment betwixt the other two, having room only for a bed, a little table, and a chair, with a diminutive window, shedding diminutive light on the scene. This was the sanctuary of that cottage home, thither, daily, and oftentimes a day. Generally, after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut to the door, and we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us, as of old by the high priest within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life, and we learned to slip out and in past that door on tiptoe, not to disturb the holy colloquy. The outside world might not know, but we knew. Whence came that happy light as of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my father's face? It was a reflection from the divine presence— in the consciousness of which he lived. Never in temple or cathedral, on mountain or in glen, can I hope to feel that the Lord God is more near, more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oaken wattles. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes, and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet, and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God, would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal he walked with God, why may not I? Chapter 2. Our Forebears. A few notes had better here be given as to our forebears, the the kind of stock from which my father and mother sprang. My father's mother, Janet Murray, claimed to be descended from a Galloway family that fought and suffered for Christ's crown and covenant in, in Scotland's killing time, and was herself a woman of a pronouncedly religious development. Her husband, our grandfather, William Patton, had passed through a roving and romantic career before he settled down to be a a deuce deacon of the weavers of Dumfries like his father before him. Forced by a press gang to serve on board a British man of war, he was taken prisoner by the French and thereafter placed under Paul Jones, the pirate of the seas, and, and bore to his dying day the mark of a slash from the captain's sword across his shoulder for some slight disrespect or offense. Determining with two others to escape, the three were hotly pursued by Paul Jones's men. One who could swim but little was shot and had to be cut adrift by the other two, who in the darkness swam into a cave and managed to evade for two nights and a day the rage of their pursuers. My grandfather, being young and gentle and yellow-haired, persuaded some kind heart to rig him out in, in female attire, and in this costume escaped the attentions of the press gang more than once, until, after many hardships, he bargained with the captain of a coal sloop to stow him away amongst his black diamonds, and thus, in due time, he found his way home to Dumfries, where he It tackled bravely and wisely the duties of husband, father, and citizen for the remainder of his days. The smack of the sea about the stories of his youth gave zest to the talks round their quiet fireside, and that, again, was seasoned by the warm evangelical spirit of his covenanting wife, her lips dropping grace. On the other side, my mother, Janet Rogerson, had for parents a father and mother of the Annandale stock. William Rogerson, her father, was one of many brothers, all men of uncommon strength and great force of character, quite worthy of the border reavers of an earlier day. Indeed, it was in some such way that he secured his wife. Though the dear old lady in After Days was chary about telling the story, she was a kind of a good poised position, the the ward of two um, unscrupulous uncles who had charge of her small estate near Langholm. And while attending some boarding school, she fell devotedly in love with the tall, fair-haired, gallant, young blacksmith, William Rogerson. Her guardians, doubtless very properly, objected to the connection. But our young Lochinvar, with his six or seven stalwart brothers and other trusty lads all mounted, and with some ready tools in case of need, went boldly and claimed his bride, and she, willingly mounting at his side, was borne off in the light of open day, joyously married, and took possession of her butt and ben as the mistress of the blacksmith's castle. Janet Jardine bowed her neck to the self-chosen yoke with the light of a supreme affection in her heart, and showed in her gentler ways her love of books, her fine accomplishments with the needle, and her general air of ladyhood, that her lot had uh, once been cast in easier but not necessarily happier ways. Her blacksmith lover proved not unworthy of his lady-bride and in old age found for her a quiet and modest home, the fruit of years of toil and hopeful thrift, their own little property, in which they rested and, and waited a happy end. Amongst those who at last wept by her grave stood amidst many sons and daughters her son, the Reverend James J. Rogerson, clergyman of the Church of England, who for many years thereafter and till quite recently was spared to occupy a distinguished position at ancient Shrewsbury and has left behind him there an honored and beloved name. From such a home came our mother, Janet Jardine Rogerson, a bright-hearted, high-spirited, patient, toiling, and altogether heroic little woman, who for about forty-three years made and kept such a wholesome, independent, God-fearing, and self-reliant life for her family of five sons and six daughters, as constrains me when I look back on it now, in the light of all I have since seen and known of others, far differently situated, almost to worship her memory. She had gone with her high spirits and breezy disposition to gladden as their companion the quiet abode of some grand or great-grand-uncle and aunt, familiarly named in all that dull Winston neighborhood, old Adam and Eve. Their house was on the outskirts of the moor, and life for the young girl there had not probably too much excitement. But one thing had arrested her attention. She had noticed that a a young stocking-maker from the brig end, James Patton, the son of William and Janet there, was in the habit of stealing alone into the quiet wood, book in hand, day after day, at certain hours, as if for private study and meditation, It was a very excusable curiosity that led the young bright heart of the girl to watch him devoutly reading and hear him reverently reciting, though she knew not then. It was Ralph Erskine's gospel sonnets, which he could say by heart 60 years afterwards as he lay on his bed of death. And finally, that curiosity awed itself into a a holy respect when she saw him lay aside his broad scotch bonnet kneel down under the sheltering wings of some tree and pour out all his soul in daily prayers to God. As yet they had never spoken. What spirit moved her, let lovers tell? Was it all devotion or was it a touch of unconscious love kindling in her toward the yellow-haired and thoughtful youth? Or was there a stroke of mischief, of that teasing, which so often opens up the door to the most serious step in all of our lives. Anyhow, one day she slipped in quietly, stole away his bonnet, and hung it on a branch nearby. While his trance of devotion made him oblivious of all around, and then from a safe retreat, she watched and enjoyed his perplexity in seeking for and finding it. A second day this was repeated, but his manifest disturbance of mind and his long pondering with the bonnet in hand, as if almost alarmed, seemed to touch another chord in her heart, Uh, that chord of pity, which is so often the prelude of love, that finer pity that grieves to wound anything nobler or tenderer than ourselves. Next day, when he came to his accustomed place of prayer, A little card was pinned against the tree just where he knelt, and on it these words, She who stole away your bonnet is ashamed of what she did. She has a great respect for you and asks you to pray for her that she may become as good a Christian as you are. Staring long at that writing, he forgot Ralph Erskine for one day. Taking down the card and wondering who the writer could be, He was abusing himself for his stupidity in not suspecting that someone had discovered his retreat and removed his bonnet, instead of wondering whether angels had been there during his prayer, when suddenly, raising his eyes, he he saw in front of old Adam's cottage, uh, though a a lane amongst the trees, the passing of another kind of angel— "'swinging a milk-pail in her hand "'and merrily singing some snatch of old Scottish song, "'He knew in that moment, by a divine instinct, "'as infallible as any voice that ever came to seer of old, "'that she was the angel visitor "'that had stolen in upon his retreat, "'that bright-faced, clever-witted niece of old Adam and Eve, "'to whom he had never yet spoken, "'but whose praises he had often heard said and sung, Wee Jen, they called her. I am afraid he did pray for her in in more senses than one that afternoon. At any rate, (coughs) more than a scotch bonnet was very effectually stolen. A good heart, and true, was there virtually bestowed, and the trust was never regretted on either side and never betrayed. Often and often, in the genial and beautiful hours of the autumn tide of their long life, have I heard my dear father tease Jen about her maidenly intentions in the stealing of that bonnet. And often I've heard her quick mother wit in the happy retort that had his motives for coming to that retreat been altogether and exclusively pious, he would probably have found his way to the other side of the wood. But that men who prowled about the Garden of Eden Ran the risk of meeting someday with a daughter of Eve. and that's chapter two. My, this is going to be an interesting one, don't you think? Come back uh, in a couple days uh, if you're in real time and we'll we'll continue this. We'll be doing this Lord Willing three times a week until it's finished, and uh, looking forward to it. I hope you are. This is the Hackberry House of Cho Son and Lord Willing. We'll talk again real soon. Bye bye.